but I, I try to push and bring different ideas to them that they may not have otherwise. Uh, and so just simple practices I, I have at, at work, you know, just writing down what are my top five priorities for the week and sticking to that and, you know, constantly reminding. I, I do with my nine-year-old daughter uh, and she writes on the board, what is she going to do? Even if it's something very simple, I said, you have to have a direction, you have to have uh, uh, a plan. And that's something that hopefully it brings some discipline in. Welcome to Innovation and Leadership, where I interview uncommonly high achievers like top investment fund managers, elite special operations soldiers, startup CEOs who sold their companies for billions of dollars, pro athletes, Hollywood filmmakers, really as many different kinds of experts as I can. The whole idea is to hear how they did it and then what advice they have for the rest of us that can be applied to the organizations we're trying to grow and innovate. Thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoyed today's show. Today on the show, I've got Andy Klump, CEO, founder, CEA. If you missed part one, go back and listen to him. Um, we, we covered coming out of Harvard, moving to China, helping companies go public, all sorts of craziness, starting his own business, having 30% compound annual growth rate. And there's something I'm thinking about our previous conversation, Andy, that I, I'd love to talk about. It. Um, I think about the growth that you've had, right? And um, I want to talk about this advice that you got when you went when you went and talked to these different CEOs about the skill set that they wish they had spent more time on, and and how you actually designed your career on that. Can you can you tell us this? So when I was at at Harvard Business School, I had the good fortune to listen to a lot of great speakers and influential leaders, and I've always been studying leadership uh, really since my first uh, internship when I was at uh, an undergrad, and so I've always. Uh, try to approach leaders and understand as much as I could about uh, their experiences. And so when I was at Harvard Business School, I was talking to some of the uh, the famous uh, CEOs who would come in and have a chance to ask them a question or two. So I always asked two questions. I always asked, what was the one functional skill set that you wish you had? And I said, secondly, what was the one region of the world that you wish you had some experience in? And at the time, I never worked or lived outside the United States, uh, but I traveled to Southeast Asia right before business school, and I became fascinated with uh, the Asian culture. And so when I asked those two questions, uh, invariably, anyone who was a global CEO or ran any kind of you know, significant business, they almost always said, functionally, they wish they had more sales experience. And secondly, they wish they had experience in, in China. So I went it about on my on my way as I was thinking about my future career path. And at the time, I was not clear what I wanted to do. I just knew I really enjoyed Asia. Uh, and that was an amazing experience and traveling there for a few months. But when I then sat down and really thought about what I wanted to do, I said, I have to do sales. I have to do it in China. And uh, that was the path I chose. So thinking about this most of your colleagues at the time they're going to work for McKinsey they're going to do investment banking um you know salesmen you know you think about such a glamorous job I mean it's right up there with garbage men in a lot of people's minds right and I say this as a as a salesperson myself um I think about my early years we talked about this I think about my early years and you know as an art school dropout right trying to be an entrepreneur I had sales jobs because the only thing that could make enough money. And uh, I was always trying to get out of sales. I didn't want people to think I was a salesman, all this kind of stuff, right? And then, um, you know, end up at the front end of an M&A team at Citigroup. And now I'm selling CEOs on why they should let Citi sell their company and go on to start making what I thought was a lot of money as a 24-year-old and this kind of stuff. And it became like this thing that I started to embrace. And, and I really credit a lot for anything I have accomplished as so much of it has come from that skill set. 
And it seems like you feel like that early sales experience was valuable for you. Can you talk about that? Uh, Absolutely. So once again, my... My observation when I study this uh, this opportunity with uh, with different uh, you know, from different leaders about the experience they wanted, and I said sales is what I wanted to do. I had a functional background in uh, business development and some marketing and a little bit of consulting, but I really had jumped around a few different roles. But I did not carry a bag. I did not sell, and so I was able to uh, to talk my way into a role in direct sales, where I actually had to. Uh, I had to sell uh, directly uh, to uh, to the end uh, business owner, and so I was. Um, I, and I guess the story behind that was I had uh, worked for Intel the summer of two thousand two in Shanghai. I had the experience uh, doing some joint business development deals and other uh, other technical related areas that built off of my software background because I worked at Intel Software Lab. But I knew I wanted to go back to China and work in sales. And I said, software was a rough space. Let me focus on hardware. So Michael Dell was speaking at the MIT MBA program at a special post-school event. So I, I took my bike over. Uh, we sat in the back. I tried to get as close up front as I could. And I said, I want to talk to Michael Dell. I really want to find out a way I could work for, for Dell in China. And he made his hour speech. There was some... Q&A, I was lucky enough to ask one question. And at the end of the speech, they then said, thanks for your time. Michael's got to go. And they whisked him away before I could go uh, crowd the stage and ask him my, my one krilling question about how do, I, how do I get to Dell China? So I thought about that and I said to myself, what's one way I can reach out to Michael Dell? Because I had no connectivity to him whatsoever. And so I just guessed what his, his address was. I had a friend who was... His email address? Uh, yes. His, uh, my friend was uh, you know, john.smith at dell.com. So I said, well, let me write to michael.dell at dell.com. And uh, this is a tried and true sales tactic, which many people know now. But back in the time, it was a new idea for me. So I, uh, I sent a, an email. And I kept it very brief. And I said, in all caps, Dell China defeats legend, which legend was the precursor to Lenovo. The, the Chinese company that had a lot of uh, strength in, in, in computers. So uh, Dell, uh, apparently someone in Michael Dell's office saw that note. They forwarded it on to Asia Pacific. They then forwarded it on to the China team. And then I had a, a call with the CEO of uh, Dell China. And so he invited me to interview. And I was given the role as North Region, North Region Sales uh, Manager for the Global Client Program. Uh, and I, I had my interviews. I showed up. Uh, they gave me an offer. It was well over sixty plus percent pay cut from other high paying software jobs I could have had in the U.S. So I took a, a much lower paying job. I took a simple apartment that was, uh, you know, a typical kind of ten by ten by twenty room, and and just had a, a bathroom in the corner, and that was it. And so I I paid two hundred eighty dollars, uh, and I had a roughly a thirty thousand dollars salary. And I said, I'm gambling everything because all my excess money went to pay off my loans. And I had to just scrape by uh, as I started my path in Dell China. And my first day, actually three days prior to starting my role at Dell, my uh, manager called me up, whom I had never met before. And he said to me, Andy, how much sales experience do you have? And I could just tell by the way he asked the question, I was in trouble. And so I, 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 I just kind of laughed at, at, made a joke of it. I said, well, I sold myself into this role. And he didn't laugh. He didn't think it was very funny. So he's like, no, but how much experience have you had really managing a quota, you know, carrying a bag and selling? And I said, well, actually, I never have had a direct sales role. 
He said, all right, how much experience have you had in China? And I said, well, I, I, I've been here for about three weeks. <laughs> and then he literally like, put his hand in his, over his eyes, and I could just tell he wanted to get rid of me as soon as he could. He said, how, how good is your Mandarin? And, uh, and I said, well, I've been studying really hard this last year, and so I just tested his second year Chinese, and so I'm really excited, but I'm going to learn really quickly. And so... He said, okay, you're telling me you have zero sales experience. You have zero China experience. You don't even speak the language. And you're here to sell commodity products to my customers. And he said, honestly, I don't want you to waste my time or your time. We're going to reassign you to marketing. And I said, no. I said, I'm here to do sales. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to follow my dream. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to uh, do what you ask. And so he, he said, I'll, I'll get back to you. So I called my, uh, the guys I interviewed, and I called the, the president. I said, look, I came here. I've relocated my whole life. I have over $100,000 in debt. I have to take the job that I wanted. This was my dream job, and I am here. So don't change me to marketing. And so uh, they responded uh, and relented on my, my immediate manager and said, okay, let Andy come down this path and see how he goes. And the first quarter, I hit 21% of my quota. And they made it very clear. I had a $500,000 quota. I hit 21%. They said, if you don't hit your quota and within two quarters, you will be fired. And I had to struggle to get through that's the, the second quarter because I then they then took the same number of accounts. They gave me a few more accounts, but they uh, gave me a 20% higher quota. So I had to hit a $600,000 quota. When I hit 21%, I said, how can this work? So it was, uh, it was the, the, I still remember the day I had a conversation with my mom on the 28th of October, 2003. And she told me, Andy, what is your dream? And I said, I, I dream to come to China and to be able to, to make a path here, make a, a career of my own. And, and she said, Andy, that's what you have to do. You have to follow your dreams. And she told me a story about my father. And my father grew up in a rural uh, town of Missouri uh, called Perryville. 5,000 folks, and he was a 10th out of 12 kids. And you, you grew up in St. Louis. I grew up in St. Louis. Okay. And so uh, he migrated from the small rural town to urban uh, you know, St. Louis. And I, uh, my mom reminded me that he wanted to be, uh, the, he wanted to be the, uh, the big sheriff. He wanted to be the, the, town, uh, you know, the town cop. And that was, that was his dream. And he didn't follow that. But he did the closest thing he could, which was become a cab driver, because he could drive an ex-cop car. So that was one of the things that he wanted to do. And so that was how he compromised on his dream. But my mother told me, you need to make your dream come true. So follow your dreams. And so I wrote that small slogan and put it right outside. Okay, my... it, it's funny because it sounds so cheesy it or some trite, absolutely. Like Hallmark movie or something like that, of right? Course. And at the same time, I'm sitting here going like, oh, I bet that worked. <laughs> and so I... I was, mind you, I was five out of my six months into sales, and I was still way behind on the quarter. I'd only, I, about two-thirds of the quarter had, had gone through, uh, and, or I knew the holidays were coming up, so I didn't think I had that much time left to hit my goal, and I was still at uh, very basic levels. So at that point in time, I said, all right, I'm doubling down. I was working 12 or 13 hours a day. I upped my hours to 14 to 15 hours a day, and mind you, I was still very conscious to wake up an hour early in the morning and to stay up an hour later at night so I could continue to learn the language because I knew learning Mandarin was key to success. And not only did I have to learn the language, I had to learn the culture. And so I kept investing in that. And on weekends, I shunned all foreigners. 
I did not go out and have fun and, and drink at night. I went and I just hung out in the local shops and I talked to randoms and I hung out with Chinese friends. And I did whatever I could to advance my language skills. And through this process, uh, after my mother gave me the follow your dream speech, as trite as it sounds, that was what I looked at on my door when I walked out every single day. And so with that resolve, with that determination of passion, I then uh, found a way to get more sales for my clients. And with three days left before the end of the quarter, I convinced the German IT manager, which almost every other decision maker was Chinese, but I found a, a German IT manager who uh, liked me and he had a big order and he gave it to me three days left before the end of the quarter and just allowed me to hit my quota. So I was literally uh, <laughs> I just saved by the skin of my teeth. And uh, I learned through that experience what sales is about. And it was about having the mental mindset that, yes, I'm going to hit my numbers. No matter what obstacles come across my desk or my plate, I am absolutely going to hit my numbers. And I think that's the same passion and drive that really drove me as an entrepreneur. And that was a very important life skill. So my second quarter at Dell, that was one of my defining experiences, one of my China defining experiences. And so that's why I'm glad I went down the path of sales. And that experience turned out to be very valuable later on in my career. Man, I love that story. It should be like its own book or something. <laughs> you know, it's it's interesting. I think about this like I can just hear the passion leaking out of you, right? And I think um, now I wear, you know, the badge salesperson is like a badge of honor. And it it's like it's so easy to try at sales, right? But to like decide I'm a sales professional and I'm going to nail this and stuff isn't going your way and you don't give up. You know what I mean? It is a, you do kind of like recognize the kindred spirits who are like on that level, who are willing to hustle no matter what and like to pay that price no matter what. And it is fascinating to see those people, some, like you meet somebody like that and, and it is, I like the, that you use this idea of a defining moment because in some ways it's almost like there, there's so many people talk about like discovering yourself or finding yourself. And I love the guys who say, don't worry about finding yourself, invent yourself. And it's something like at those defining moments, those people are like, this sucks. I'm not going to make it. Nothing, nothing indicates that I should keep doing this. Plus it sucks. Right. 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 And then they do anyways. And then they do make it. You check in with those people a decade later, they're running the world. Like what they've accomplished, how, how well things have gone for them. I don't know. That's what I feel like. Cause I look at some of my friends and some of the people where it's been like, Man, those really tough situations when they should have just quit. Everybody knows they should have quit. They know they should have quit and they didn't quit. And then they like discovered something about themselves or invented something about themselves that they stood on that for years to come with the next thing and the next thing. Do you agree with me? Do you see it different? What do you yes, think? Yes, no, I look, I agree. I, th I think it, it comes down to uh, you know, developing grit and having uh, a certain determination that allows one to overcome obstacles. Uh, that is something that uh, is an extremely important skill. And, and I think it's something that can absolutely be learned, but what, you have to put yourself in those situations where you're uncomfortable, where you're, you're not in a, a normal mainstream plan. And so uh, I, I look back at my childhood and I feel very fortunate that I was put in situations where I didn't really fit in or I struggled and uh, faced a lot of rejection. And that was, uh, that was a positive. So I, it's something I think about because I have four daughters and I, I think they're, they're growing up in a much more comfortable environment than when I did. Uh, granted, it's in China. It's international. It's also drastically different from St. Louis, Missouri. But I, I also think about how does one develop that skill set? How do you 
how do you put your kids into uh, an environment where they develop their own grit? So I think it's just important for all of us, whether we're leaders or, or not, to uh, constantly challenge yourselves, you know, force yourself to learn something new or learn a different skill or do something that makes you feel uncomfortable because uh, that's where you can really learn and grow. Yeah, that's stretching, right? You think about um, any of the science about deliberate practice, you know, the 10,000 hour guys and stuff like this. And, um, you know, the science shows that the myelination around the neural connections in our brain that allow the electrical currents to move faster or slower, that's why like pro basketball players make it look easy or, you know, chess champions, you know, it's their brain is literally thinking about it a hundred times faster than ours. If you can get 50 wraps of myelin around a neural connection, right? Uh, and what they found is um, just doing the same thing over and over doesn't myelinate a neuron. Think about like people that you know who they've been driving for 20 years. You wouldn't call them an expert driver. Like I've been typing every day in my adult life. I probably don't type much faster than I did 15 years ago, right? Um, but I'm not stretching myself. I'm not intentionally pushing myself outside the comfort zone. And so the brain has no need to optimize and make up for it, right? Mm-hmm. And so I typed the same speed I did 15 years ago. And you think about this. I, I love this subject, thinking about kids, right? I've got four kids as well. Mm-hmm. Um, mine are 16 to 9 right now. So you, I kind of end where you pick up, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and I look at all these entrepreneurs that I look up to who have become amazing philanthropists and impact investors and made the world better for all sorts of humans, right? And um, I want my kids I want my kids to be of maximum value to their fellow man, Right. And yet I see kids who grew up with privilege and kind of get stuff handed to them. And they are so unlikely to have, you know, to provide that level of service for others. And yet those CEOs, those, those people who really made it who don't give their kids the handout and they do focus more on giving their kids the opportunity to build the skill set. And, uh, and so my question for you is this, I know because you have four kids, I don't know your kids, but I know that things that you thought about being a dad were different when all of a sudden you're like, well, that kid's different. They came, they came like that. <laughs> we didn't make that. They right, came right, like right, that. Right. Mm-hmm. And so adjusting for personalities, plus nobody wants to make anybody go through any extra pain than they don't need to, but yet you want them to have defining, defining experiences. So this is me asking you for parenting advice. <laughs> so, uh, yes, I, I agree. And I've not, uh, I've not mastered, uh, parenting by any stretch uh, this is something i i still learn and and trying to improve on constantly but uh and it's impossible for me to recreate my childhood i don't want to recreate that for the sake of my daughters but i i try to push and bring different ideas to them that they may not have otherwise uh and so just simple practices i i have at, at work you know just writing down what are my top five priorities for the week and sticking to that and, you know, constantly reminding. I, I do with my nine-year-old daughter, uh, and she writes on the board, what is she going to do? Even if it's something very simple, I said, you have to have a direction. You have to have uh, uh, a plan, and that's something that hopefully it brings some discipline in. Uh, we've all... Andy, I need that for me. I love my <laughs> kids. Okay, go on. So, but, but once again, I and I... I just in the process, you know, I've, I've read through books about, you know, how to raise financial awareness with kids, you know, and there's so many Any, folks any have, authors you like? Anybody you'd recommend? Uh, you know, the, the book, uh, I have to get back to you, add it to the show notes about uh, what book, but I think it's Raising Financially Fit Kids. And so um, I forgot the author, but it's, uh, it's, it's a great read. It has some very basic uh, advice. And so once again, I started off giving, uh, you know, starting off kids with allowance on pennies and just, you know, migrating to nickels and dimes and 
uh, the ones again mixing Chinese currency in as well and explaining, uh, giving them the 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 the, uh, the opportunity to negotiate for a chore. So we'll pick a, we'll discuss what chore, and then they have to negotiate with me. And so it's a practice of, of raising awareness about the fact that whatever you earn, you know, part of it, it has to be saved, part of it you donate to charity, and part of it you got to get rid of. Uh, and it's either a tax or it's uh, something else that you got to pay back to someone, but. Uh, we went through the process with my nine-year-old. She wanted a new bike, and I said, okay, well, the new bike you want is actually more expensive than what we've allotted for. So and I knew full well we could just pay for it, just give it to her. But I said, we're going to create uh, – I'm going to teach you what a credit card is. So we actually created a credit card, and uh, you know, we charge a 5% interest. It's like explain what interest rate was. And uh, these concepts I didn't even know until I was in college. So I was just trying to – raise exposure and give uh, opportunities uh, for, for my, uh, my oldest daughter to learn. I, you know, I think these type of experiences are important. And I, I remember having chores uh, when I was a kid and uh, saving every little bit because I recognized we didn't have as much. Uh, and those savings accumulated over time. And I then used those to help pay for high school and then later on for college. And it, I, I learned financial uh, savings practices from out of necessity, but I'm, I'm trying to use an artificial mechanism to allow my daughter to to learn and expand uh, her mind and horizons. So I love that. You know, I think, and I know we're winding up here, but I think just this conversation has made me realize that um, I want to make sure my kids have sales jobs. And like, I think part of the reason I've been working so hard in marketing, you know, you and I both talk about content marketing and stuff is because, you know, I have been selling. I got my first real sales job when I was 15 years old. I, in Edmonton, Alberta, Canada, I sat in the middle of the city in a big trailer full of corn that had been cut at the farm in this uh, area that everybody knows about. And I sold corn by myself on the corner in the city, you know, right. And I've been a sales guy ever since, even when I was CEO of investment funds, I just feel like I'm top sales guy, but it's actually motivated me to learn marketing. So I don't have to sell so much, but completely informed my marketing skills because I hear people spout stuff off and I'm like, well, nobody's going to buy anything if you say it that way. <laughs> that I wouldn't have known had I not had to like look people in the eye and say, can you cut me a check for that? And they go, no. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So um, whether it's because they want to become salespeople or because they want to know what skills they need to produce so they don't have to be salespeople, that's a, that's a job I hadn't really thought about. Like, yeah, I'm going to make sure, you know, I'd look at these kids, teenagers, they go get a job at fast food because that's what other teenagers did. And there's so many like, basically useless like so many jobs that are unlikely to give them a skill set that would really help them in the future for entrepreneurship philanthropy things that make the world better you know so anyways that's what i'm i I completely agree but i'm gonna look up this book too i'm gonna (laughs) amazon we're gonna buy this book there's there's a lot of uh, i think there's a lot of paths to success but i think uh having a broad exposure uh, to many different uh functions and skill sets is is important so yes i i sold pizzas uh, for that Boy Scout troop, so I could pay for summer camp. I I remember what you're that an Eagle was like. Scout, right? Yes, I am an Eagle Scout, and uh, I went to summer camp for seven seven years for free because that was my one vacation. We didn't take family vacations, so to go camping for a week that was my chance to get away from the city. So I was excited by that. So I can't re- necessarily recreate that for my daughter, but you know, I've I've helped her go door to door when she had to to raise money for a fundraiser, and so we, we learned about that process and learning what it's like you know i remember her being at six and i was like, teaching her to shake hands with a firm handshake look people in the eye and ask for donation and explain what your your cause is so these are just important basics uh basic skills that i think everyone needs to have and i look back in my early stage of my career and i'm glad i i jumped around a few different jobs i 
I never held a job more than 18 months uh, my first few years. And that's why I went to business school. I was trying to figure out what I wanted to do. But when I knew where my passion was, I knew I wanted to do, uh, do to come to China. And then I later found out solar energy. And then I later found out entrepreneurship. And now I've been doing the same thing the last 12 years. So it is, uh, it's a constant journey and a, a process of exploration until you really find your passion. But gaining many different uh, areas and experiences, uh, I think, is a, is a positive. I love it. Well, listen, if, if people have caught the bug for solar, they're looking at this, they want to find out more about, you know, why, let's say they want to know why they would like somebody like you in China making sure their stuff gets done right. Where, where's the best place to connect with you? Where's the best stuff to follow you? LinkedIn, I generally follow. It's the best way. Uh, you know, email is, uh, is, is not the best way uh, because I've, my inbox is flooded, but generally responsive on LinkedIn and easy to look up. But, you know, it's Andy Klump, Klump with a K. So, um, I'm very approachable and always happy to uh, you know, to help people that are involved in renewable energy uh, or just you know new folks who want to enter the industry or, or folks that want to come to China. Uh, so we've taken on dozens of, of, uh, of bright hires, uh, folks with just raw talent uh, who knew the industry, uh, given opportunities to grow and learn and experience China. So uh, there's there's a lot of areas of renewables that need bright talent. So I'm always keen to get uh, get more uh, more talent in the industry. I love it. Okay, thanks for doing this. Excellent. Thanks, Jess. Thanks, everybody.